Number four is where God begins to throw out all of the stars and the galaxies and the form and to fashion them and to shape them and to place them and literally to hang them upon His very Word and, and sets forth all these things in motion. We talked about how they're formed and, and the beauty and the wonderment of them all and as well as their purpose. How God has used the stars of, and the sun and the moon for man's good and for man's benefit and, and for man's life and even livelihood and, and, and as He still uses it today. And and how he was preparing uh, for these things as well, even for the future, that it's going to be through some of those uh, things that we see, the luminaries that are going to demonstrate when the last of the last days are happening, right? And now we're not looking for blood moons and and harvest moons and things like that and thinking, oh, this is it, tonight's a night. It might be, but any night could be the night, right? Even so, that should be our attitude. However, uh, we know that uh, the Lord uses those things to be doing great signs and wonders. But now as we come to day five, day five seems a little light almost in comparison. If we were just to read on the surface level, verses 20 and 23, we go, so God made fish and God made birds, and that's it, right? He, he allowed us to have fish and birds. That's, that's it, day five. But there's a lot more here, and I want to look at that tonight. I want to read verse 20 through 23 just so we can uh, get through it all, and then we're going to work our way through here tonight and, and just address some things that the Lord would have us to, to look at. It says, and God said... Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth and the open firmament of heaven. We've heard that phrase before. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind and every winged fowl and after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. There's a couple of things that we find here that God has done over and over on each day. And that is, and God said, and then there was. God speaks. God does not take the millions of years nor take stuff and go, well, let me see what I got here in the, here in the pantry and, and put something together, whip it up. He, he speaks and it happens. He speaks and everything shoots forth as it's supposed to be. Not in a pre-developed state, not in a waiting for it all to evolve together, but it's there, right? You and I, if we want brownies, right, what do we do? If we want brownies, we don't go, I want, <laughs> you either, if you don't cook, right, or bake, good, you, you go to the store, or you make friends with somebody who does, right, and that's okay. What have you got to do to get brownies, right? Or you, you do this, right, you know I can't go, I want brownies, and like, I love Jeannie, and Boom, there, there's the brownies, right? And then there they're on the counter that smells good in the house. You got don't work that way, right? You know, it's a process. If you're gonna make them, you either one, you go to the cupboard and you get the box of Betty Crocker that is still just as good in a pinch, because they still make brownies, and, and it takes process. Add the ingredients together, bake it for the right time, let it cool, cut them, bring them out, the whole nine yards, and then eat the whole pan and all that goodness, right? It's a process. When God says, let there be brownies, there's brownies. There's not brownie mix, there's brownies, right? And so we see the difference here. You and I, when we create, it takes time. It takes taking other ingredients to make one thing, right? A brownie isn't made up of brownie. It's made up of a whole bunch of other stuff, isn't it, right? Y'all know that, right? Okay, all right, making sure. Some of y'all look like, I know what brownies are, but I just thought they was made of brownie, right? It, it, it takes, it's more there, right? Cake isn't just cake. Cake is the flour and the sugar and the 
uh, egg, uh, the other stuff, right? <laughs> and it comes together, right? Even adding the heat and everything else to come to it, right? We see that God speaks and it's there. Now, on this fifth day, God said, let the waters, which have been so important up to this point. Remember, in the waters, verse number one, we see darkness upon the face of the deep and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. All the way through, we're going to see that God is creating from, as we see here in your booklet, from the depths to the heights. Depths deep, wide, and then up. He goes from down to up. He, why? Because it's a pattern of ourselves, right? When we create a house or build a house, what do you do? You start with the roof, you do the walls, you do the windows, and then you do the foundation, right? No, you do the opposite, right? You do the foundation. Foundation's got to stand. So what does he do? He starts from the bottom and works his way up. Now, he does this in a manner because we find in verse number one, darkness in the deep, the bottom. And then what happens in verse number two, day two, we have the separation of the waters and the firmament and all this stuff that works its way up. The firmament that's below, the three heavens we talked about, as he's going to say um, in uh, verse number 20, that let the birds fly up in the open firmament of the heaven, right? That's our atmosphere. The second heaven then is the cosmos, which he created day four. And then the third heaven, which is his heavenly dwelling place where, where he dwells, right? And, and then uh, day three, we've got uh, the Lord uh, creates these things, uh, separates the land and the waters, find that importance there then we find day four the the lights and the ferments being separated day five we come and once more let the waters now they're going to bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life now the issue with evolution today is that they say what happens on land came from that which was in the water so a plankton decided one day it was going to change into a plankton that had arms and legs and then it was going to start to develop gills and start swimming. And then it was going to develop scales and it was going to become all these other things. It don't make any sense, but that's what they say, right? Even scientists would say that we come from a sort of primordial ooze. You want to know what the popular theory today is, actually that's growing leaps and bounds, is that younger folks today, my, my generation, the one above me and below me, are tending now to lean towards the theory that extraterrestrial beings came to, I, I can't make this up, came to the earth in its early stages like we would find in like verse 1 and 2 of Genesis 1, and they planted the seeds in the different parts of the earth to then eventually evolve and to become life. There you go, right? It, it, that's the popular belief today. I'd ask that one, how'd the aliens get there? Who made them? Did other aliens plant seeds and other plants make those aliens that then came and made our plant? Right? Because then how the other aliens get there? How the other? We see there is a need for a divine creator. There is no other explanation. And what that is doing is they are admitting with their own theory that someone or something that has creative abilities and a mind has to do the planting bare minimum. Right? They even know you don't get an apple unless there's a seed planted in the ground first to get an apple tree that produces apples. And so their logic fails them because they clearly see that there's a God that they should answer to and clearly see that there's a God who made them, but they don't want to answer that God because deep down they don't like that God because they would have to conform to that God and his standards, and we don't meet those standards. So what's the answer? Where's the hope for the one who does not conform to the image of Christ by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone? They have no hope. And so for them, they have to find something to cling on to, and that's all they're holding on to. They're holding on to a thread. God begins 
the creating and bringing life from the depth to height, and the climax being on the land itself, as we're going to see as we move forward on to day six. But notice the phrase here, this uh, word that I absolutely love. Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life. Abundant life. The word abundantly here, it is meaning not just like a lot of or an abundance of. It has the idea of absolutely populating or teeming or swarming with life. Right? Even, even to, today, we can't quite fathom what that would look like, but you might see as the geese fly south for the winter, right? As they're coming, what happens? Right? You see tons of them in the sky, but even that I don't think can compare to what happens on this day that God says, hey, throw some birds out there, right? Put some fish in the sea. It's literally everywhere. We find that we go from no life to an abundant life everywhere. Now, what does that remind us of spiritually? We go from dead in sins and trespasses where there is no life to what happens the moment you're saved. There's abundant life that you're now literally teeming or swarming, uh, uh, have an abundance of life in you. Why? Because now we have the breath of God that has been breathed into us and we go from something that was dead and had no life, formless and void, to now we have an abundant life. You say, well, what about the abundance of physical things? That's not what he's talking about. We're talking when Jesus says, I've come to give you uh, an abundant life. It is a spiritually abundant life. It's that we should have love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, meekness, temperance, all these things, all these fruits of the spirit that are to be our abundant life. And the fact that this life, we have an abundance now because of the Holy Spirit that indwells us, but our abundant life isn't coming on this earth. It's coming in the next. It's coming when we meet the Lord. It's coming when we leave this earth behind and we go into the new heavens, new earth with Christ, where indwelleth righteousness, where we will be with him. We want to talk about life. This is the picture that is painted here. The waters bring forth abundant life. Now, he noticed this. He's about to tell them after their own kind, and then he's going to tell them to multiply. God does not bring just one of each thing, right? What happens is we've failed our kids a little bit. In our Sunday school classrooms, in our pictures of the Garden of Eden, we've got Adam and Eve behind a tree like this, so we can't show nothing, right? And then we've got over next to him, we might have like a picture of a giraffe, and then there might be a lion over there, just one, right? And there might be a, a toucan or a cockatoo in the tree that they're hiding in, or, you know, right? And we go, oh, wow, sure was a pretty garden. I don't think that quite does it here. We're talking about teeming with life because if there's just one giraffe, you're not going to get more giraffes than that one giraffe, are you? It takes two. It takes two giraffes. And I don't think that God here even just does two by two. We don't see that until later on, until there's a great judgment where God is going to bring a new creation, if you will, when Noah and his family step off the ark. A picture of what happens, mind you, in Revelation. We're skipping ahead. This is it's there. So when we look at Revelation, what happens What happens before new heavens, new earth in chapter 21 and 22? Chapter 19 and 20 is the judgment. Who makes it out of the judgment? Only those who have entered the ark. Who has entered the ark? It's those who have entered Christ because the ark is a picture type of Jesus, the Christ. And then what happens? We go into a new creation. And mind you, go ahead and you can look. It's kind of neat. If you go and look at all the stones and the colors that are represented of the city in chapter 21, 22, you know what those colors would look like? It'd be like a prism. 
know what a prism is, that clear thing? But if you hold it with the light, what does the prism do? It makes a rainbow. Where'd the rainbow come from? God puts a rainbow in the cloud after the flood to show that he would not destroy the earth again. What happens in the new heavens and new earth? There will be no destruction again. Why? Because there's no more curse there. Isn't that cool? We're going to get there later on. That's just there. It's cool. God is painting these pictures for us all throughout Scripture. All throughout Genesis, Nexus, Leviticus, even Numbers, even Deuteronomy, even Joshua and Judges, and all the way through. Why? Because he's a God who at the beginning has the end in mind because he already saw you, knew what you'd be like and all the wicked stuff you'd do and decided to save you anyways, not because you were good, but because he's good, and that he would take you based upon his righteousness and you trusting in it and bring you into a new creation. Why? Because he's going to make you and you are a new creation in Christ Jesus and one day we'll be even newer in a glorified body. can't imagine how good that is. Move, it sounds pretty good, don't it? I'll take that deal, won't I? Now we move forward here. The sea life and the flying creatures. First of all, the sea life. I want to look at this. He says in verse uh, number 21, says, and God created great whales and every living creature that moveth which the waters brought forth, once more that word, abundantly. Not one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, but all the fish, right? Everything that is in these waters. Now, the word that is used here, I've got it here for you. Every living thing that dwells in the oceans, seas, rivers, lakes, etc., everything. All of life that dwells in the water and stays in the water Boom, he makes it. This goes from the tiniest little guppy or mackerel or a little piece of plankton all the way through the biggest of whales and even Megalodon, right? Y'all know Megalodon, the giant like 30, 40, 50 foot long shark that they talk about shark week. Each tooth was like that big. They found this. It's not made up. It's real. God makes that on this day. How about the other sea monsters and things that they found fossils of? How about those? Those were very real, and they existed at the same time, not tens of thousands of years apart or this, uh, you know, millions of years apart, but at the same time, when God says, let these things be, they are. And here's what we find. The word here that is translated as great whales is the word tannin. It is translated as great whales, but really is the meaning of long-stretched, right? It's the idea of something that is great. To be long-stretched, it would be like, Someone who is maybe seven foot tall, we'd say that long stretched, okay? And that's the idea here, is that something that is above normal size or what an average size would be like, even stretched out the length of their neck, the length of their tails and their fins and everything else. It's showing something that is large and in charge, if you will, because it's these things that are going to be there to rule the waters. It's their home, right? Not ours. People who like the beach, enjoy it all you want. I like walking up down the beach. I'll get a little bit of water on, on my foot, and that's about it. It'll get my crock wet. But I ain't getting in that ocean. You can if you want to, but I don't, right? And it's your right not It's your right to. It's your right not to. If I look and I go, you know, a shark never knocked on my door and said, hey, can I come in and me come in and be okay with it? I'm not going into his domain. He lives there. It's his the rule, right? I, I'm not going in there. It's just not my thing, right? Uh, but, but anyways, we look at this. They're there to rule. This word is also the use that is word for all the great and mighty creatures of the depths of the water, which 
we know even far less even about our oceans than we do the space and outer space. I mean, it's mind-boggling to think that you can be some part in the ocean. It's literally a couple miles down there. I mean, if, if I can't touch the ground in the swimming pool, I'm going back. Now, I'm a good swimmer, but it's, it brings about a fear, doesn't it? Now, think about this. If we were to close our eyes and to go back and read, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, it's a scary opening, isn't it? Then if we go and we talk about these sea monsters, scary to think about, right? These things are huge. And the idea is that they are a giant, massive. The uh, half here of Kidner writes, the sea monsters, the Tannenim, as translated as whales, are especially noteworthy since to the Canaanites, that Moses writing at the same time, to the Canaanites, this was an ominous word standing for the powers of chaos confronting Baal in the beginning. That is their belief of their creation story. Here, they are just magnificent creatures like Leviathan, as we can see. And I'm going to turn just momentarily, um, enjoying God's blessing with the rest of the creatures. Although in some scriptures, these names will symbolize God's enemies, taunted in the very terms in which Baal exults over them. No doubt and left by this chapter that the most fearsome of creatures were from God's good hand. There may be rebels in his kingdom, but no rivals. I love that phrase. There may be rebels in his kingdom, but there are no rivals. There are those who go against God, but there are none that compare to God. Uh, I want to turn to Job chapter 41 briefly. Good, nighttime's getting away. Job 41. I'm going to read just a few verses of this to get the word Leviathan, which is translated here as well with Tannenim and, and sort of this idea of this giant sea monster, sea creature. Y'all believe in the Loch Ness Monster? Anybody? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> it's possible. Hey, it may, I don't know. Right? I ain't going to find out. But it maybe. I know this. Job knows in verse chapter 41, God is dis, uh, dealing with Job. And he brings out this whole chapter-long illustration about Leviathan, which is this idea. We have Leviathan, which is considered to be the sea creatures or even a, a flying creature that has wings. And we're going to see how it's described later on. I don't have time to read the whole chapter. I wish I did. And then we've got behemoth, which is the idea of these behemoths of land creatures, where we get the idea of dinosaurs and everything else. They were very much real at the same time as mankind. We often miss that. They're very much there. And he says, Canst thou draw it Leviathan with an hook, or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Canst thou put a hook into his nose, or bore his jaw through with a thorn? Will he make... Many supplications unto thee, will he speak soft words unto thee? Will he make a covenant with thee? Will thou take him for a servant forever? Will thou play with him as with a bird, or will thou bind him for thy maidens? Shall the companions make a banquet of him? Shall they part him among the merchants? Canst thou fill his skin with barbed irons, or his head with fish spears? Lay thine hand upon him. Remember the battle, do no more. Behold, the hope of him is in vain. Shall no one be cast down even at the sight of him? None is so fierce that dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. Who can discover the face of his garment? Or who can come to him with his double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? His teeth are terrible round about. His scales are his pride shut up together as with the close seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together. They cannot be sundered. 
By his knees things a light doth shine, and his eyes are like eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils goeth smoke as a, out of a seething pot or, or cauldron. You go on and on and on. See, this is a fearsome creature is the idea. Psalm 41, excuse me, Job 41 deals with that. Then Isaiah 27, verse 1, I'll just read this for you. It says, In that day the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing servant, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. We find this idea in Isaiah 27, verse 1, that this illusion, of course, is being pictured Satan, but being described as a Leviathan or as a serpent, a crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon, which is also referenced in Revelation, uh, it, it shall uh, destroy him. It, it shows here that uh, these great creatures has a purpose, literally, but as well as a picture spiritually, that there are none who can stand before God, that even as mighty as the Leviathan or the Tannin or the great whale might be, that none compare before God. Why? Because it is God who made them. It reminds me of, you know, being young and even still now getting told by your dad, hey, it don't matter how big you are, you ain't going to take your old man, right? Now, he might have a bum knee, but I still, still ain't trying, right? You think about why, because when we look, the fiercest creature on the earth is still nothing compared to the hand or word of God. Now, God uses the sea life. In three ways. One, I want to give you three, three ways that he does. One, he uses certain of the animals for food for his people. And he, of course, would lay out certain ones for Israel according to the law. Praise God, we can eat whatever fish we want to because we're under grace, baby. So eat all the fish you want, whatever, right? Eat up. It's there. Number two, how else does he use these things? While delivering Jonah. We just read in Genesis 1, verse uh, number 21, and God created great whales. It would be the same sort of idea that the great whale comes and swallows Jonah. Y'all believe in Jonah, don't you? Jesus did. If it was good enough for Jesus, good enough for me that a great whale swallowed Man, Matter of fact, it was not too long ago, I believe it was this summer, that there was an actual news report of a sailor who had been swallowed up by, you guessed it, a whale. Isn't that something? It, you know, people can say, well, it's not normal, it's not natural. That can be, sure, it's not normal and natural. I, I don't see that happening. But guess what? It happened. It's a real Bible account, and we've seen even today that it's happened to actual people. And, and therefore, the Lord would use it, not just to deliver Jonah to deliver Nineveh, but ultimately to use Jesus as the sign of Jonah in the belly of the whale, where in the heart of the earth three days, three nights, to raise again and to offer life. That's the beauty, that's the picture of it. Then we also find, and I won't turn there for sake of time tonight, but in Matthew 17, the Lord uses the sea life to teach a lesson. Some come to Jesus and say, talk about taxes and how they're to give to Caesar and all that stuff. You know what the Lord does? He says, go out to the deep, catch you a fish, and the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and there's going to be the coin that's going to pay your taxes. Isn't that something? That's what happens. We have no reason to, to not believe so. And so we find how God uses the sea life, but I have here for you. The dark, deep monsters of the abyss remind us of the chaotic waters in the beginning of Genesis 1, as well as remind us that while there are things that make us fearful, that there is nothing more fearsome 
than the God who made all of these things for His purposes and glory. Second, we find the fowl of the air. The fowl of the air that He created that we've discussed in verse number 20, and the fowl that fly above the earth in the open firmament, that's our atmosphere. We find that, uh, and then it says in verse 21, which the waters bore forth abundantly after their kind, every winged fowl after his kind, and God saw that it was good. Everything that has wings from the tiniest gnat to the largest flying reptile, yes, that even means pterodactyls, those big giant winged dinosaurs that we see in movies and we hear about, very much real. The same time that doves are created, these giant flying reptiles are created as well. God creates all these things for a purpose and at the same time, to demonstrate his glory, to demonstrate all of who he is. Now, the fowl of the year have a special place as well because, one, they're going to be used for food. Later on, we see that they still get used today. We see how God even uses the fowl to demonstrate the seasons. You know it's starting to get colder when you start to see the birds going south and everything else. You can even tell something's wrong or something's dead based upon the way the birds are flying or talking or singing, right? Now, uh, the fowl of the air will also be used by God like the sea life in miraculous ways. One... Over in Genesis chapter 6 through 10, Noah, y'all have heard of him. We're going to look more at him later on. He sends out birds to do what? To find the dry land. And what happens? Bird comes back, dry land, odd branch, peace, let's go. It's time to get off the boat. Then we find another time. Later on in Exodus 16, Israel in the wilderness. They are bellyaching over their food circumstances. God has provided for them, but they say, We've been eating this heavenly manna for days. It's just getting so tiresome. And they say, we want some meat. God says, all right, you want meat? I'm going to send you all the quail you can possibly handle. Literally piles it up for them. They don't have to shoot it down with shotguns or slingshots. It shows up, boom, birds there, dead. Eat. Now, granted, it was part of some judgment as well, because many of them died because of their stubbornness, their foolishness, and their lack of trusting in God. Lack of also, also shows us too that we should be very confident and trusting and content in what God gives us. Or else he might send a whole flock of birds your way and you might die. <laughs> Think about it. That's right. That's what happened to them. It ain't happened to none of us, so we don't think it happened no more. God does what God does. Amen? <laughs> Third, Elijah in 1 Kings 17. Y'all remember the story of Elijah? Elijah is in fear of his life. He gets driven off to the brooks of Cherith. And over at the brook of Cherith, God would stick him by this brook that would be slowly drying up. God would sustain him with water, and he would bring a raven every day to bring him food in his mouth. The raven was considered unclean and all these things, and yet God showed that he was still providing for his prophet. God provides. Lastly, we also find this. Matthew chapter 3, Jesus' baptism, we find the Holy Spirit descending as a dove, showing peace, showing what God has done, that God has come to man and has brought peace, that is the Prince of Peace. We find that creation belongs to God and creation serves the purposes of God. Not one goes unserved or unfinished. It is God and God alone. We also find these truths in day 5, that there is instant life. Abundant life, and it's instantly there. We find the word kind, as we found before. The word kind, each kind is a kind and will not reproduce with another kind. We've addressed this. But it's still yet a problem for many today. This is seen in all reproductive life 
for all living creatures. That includes the birds, the reptiles, and certainly for mankind. One kind and one kind, right, takes male and female. Male and male, no reproduction. Female and female, no reproduction. Why is that? One, it's perversion, and that's the issue. It's a perversion of God's decree, His order, His image, His purposes for sexuality and marriage and relationship. As well, we find, though, that it goes contrary to all the rest of creation. God is a God of order and a creative order, and He makes it to be populated and for man and all living things to then create. Evolutionists, as, one, uh, as David Guzik writes, evolutionists often give convincing examples of microevolution, the variation of a kind within its kind, adapting to the environment. For example, the ratio of black to white peppered moths may increase when population makes it easier for dark moths to escape detection. Or finches, which is a bird, may develop different beaks in response to their distinctive environment. But the moths are still moths, and the finches are still finches. There has been no change outside of, the, outside of that kind. Microevolution does not prove macroevolution. The issue is that scientists today try to take variations and say that that proves evolution. I want to give you a human example. There are some in Eastern Asia that are really good deep-sea divers. If they don't use scuba gear, they hold their breath, and they can hold their breath, some of them, five and six minutes long. Wild to think about. Now, I want you to know this. They have not developed gills. They have not developed anything funky. They don't have scales or fins or flippers. But throughout time and their necessity, the same way that you can train your body to build muscle or to lose weight or to do this or that or the other, mankind is capable of many great things like that. But does that show evolution? Are we all going to wake up one day and have gills? or the ability to do such? No. It does not work that way. Microevolution, if you will, does not prove macro, meaning that a big bang caused everything, that nothing caused all this creative order, that chaos produces order. Chaos does not produce order. And we find then as well, another commentator writes, if evolution means the gradual change of one kind of organism into another kind, the outstanding characteristic of the fossil record is the absence of evidence for evolution. I would ask today, where are the transitioning fossils? Because they're not there. Never do we find, now scientists would say, and how many of you have heard this, that chickens are the closest living relative to dinosaurs. Anyone ever heard that today? A few of you. All right, that's what they teach our kids, by the way. All right. That, that, the chickens, y'all seen a chicken before, ain't you? We're Baptists. We've mostly seen them deep fried. But they're there. And they're saying that that chicken is the closest thing living to a Tyrannosaurus Rex. It's insanity to think that. It is absolute insanity. Where would be the fossils of a Tyrannosaurus Rex slowly developing feathers and then wings and also getting a lot smaller in size? It's never there. What is found in the fossil record is this, that there were all of these kinds of animals living at one time. And for some reason in the record, there's this great catastrophe that they don't know what exactly it was, and they're all dead. And they're all smooshed together and create fossils and all these things. How'd that happen? 
What catastrophe could, could possibly make such a thing happen? God gives us the answer as we read Genesis. Mankind is so sinful and so wicked that he must destroy it to purify it. And what happens? A great catastrophe. All of life except for two by two on a big old boat. Noah, his wife, three sons and their wives. That's it. Eight folks make it. And two of each kind of animal makes it to the ark to repopulate, to reproduce. We do not find this transition. It's not there. Even for mankind, they say that we came from hunched over Neanderthals with giant foreheads and lots of hair. And we don't find transitioning fossils. Most of the time, and for years, scientists used examples like a Neanderthal that they thought was a part human, part transition. Name was Lucy, and they found out later on that the tooth that they had, that they recreated a whole person out of, mind you, with one tooth, and they said, well, this is what she would look like. Okay, yeah, right. They took one tooth, you know what it ended up being? It ended up being a pig's tooth. That's it. Scientists have done so much to try to prove something that is not there. I would much rather take God's word in his account where he says, this is what happened. Why? Because he's there, because he makes it there. The reason why this paper is there or anyone has this account is because God reveals it. Not just so that we would know what happened at the beginning, but that we would know the one who makes the beginning. It's not just that we would know how we got here because the Bible's not about man. It's not about how we got here, what we're like or not like. It's about God revealing himself to us. We find the blessing that has been given. And this is something different. We don't find this with the sun, moon, and stars or anything else up to this point. We find a blessing for those things that are about to produce more life. It says in verse 122, And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let fowl multiply in the earth. The blessing is that the Creator allows, designs, and ordains for the created to then in turn procreate and create themselves. There's something beautiful about that, isn't it? To understand the importance of life and the meaning of life and to see new life. Whether you see a, a new life come forth as a, a new baby deer coming out of the woods and learn how to walk. It's beautiful. It, it, or how about something far greater than that? How about the cry of a, of a newborn? And no one likes a crying baby, but to hear that first cry, you know, hey, there's life. Breathing in breath in their lungs and taking it in. That's beautiful. Why? Because we know that that life has purpose, has meaning, and was created by the same hands that holds the stars and formed in mother's womb and is now having a plan and a purpose to be fulfilled in that child's lifetime. It's beautiful because it's creation. And it's a fulfillment of what God had blessed all living creatures to do, and that is to make more life. On the spiritual side of this as well, we are called to do the same thing. As we're going to get to day six, God's going to say the same thing, Adam and Eve. Right? Same thing for man. But spiritually speaking, we're called to do the same thing. Create more life. Spiritually, we are to create more disciples, other living, breathing, born-again believers. Not reproduce more dead things that just come to church. We don't need more dead things that come to church. We need life. 
Life is not in something that is dead. Life is in something that has the breath of God in it. And what that thing can then do is make more life. That's what discipleship is like. That's what the life of the church is supposed to be like. That's what our individual spiritual lives is to be like. Ever producing fruit and more life. Abundant more life for ourselves spiritually that we're living and thriving, not just getting by spiritually, but that we're thriving spiritually. We should be. All of us should be full of the joy of the Lord. Even more so then that we take that we can pass it on to others who do the same. As one commentator writes about this on day five, as animated beings, the water animals and fowls are endowed through the divine blessing with the power to be fruitful and multiply. The word of blessing was the actual communication of the capacity to propagate and increase in numbers. The command of God is a blessing. You know that? The law of God and decree of God is a blessing. Why? Because it is God speaking to his creation. So even when God tells us, quit that sin, is that a blessing or a curse? It's a blessing. It's a blessing because God has spoken to us and God desires for us to know him and God desires for us to do what is right for our good and his glory. We find the bigger picture here. Life and bringing more life is the great blessing for God's created order. The spiritual picture and practice, of course, for us as believers. And God looks on this day and says, it was good. Why was it good? Because we talked about that word good. It's good because it's preparing for the peak of creation for man. That's going to be for his good. Why? Because it's you and I that get to enjoy the oceans and the fish of the sea and the creation. And you and I that get to enjoy and use the birds and the fowl of the air and to see and to know these things. And that how scripture even points and uses both parties as illustrations of our spiritual walk. How Jesus would go on to say, it, why do you care so much? If God takes care of the, the sparrows and the little birds, you think he'll take care of his children? He says the same thing of, hey, if you're worried about paying taxes, I can bring a coin out of a fish's mouth. Right? This is who God is, and God takes care of his creation. We find this, God sees that his creation is good, and day five, day five is good because it shows God's power and creative order in the world. And it also prepares the creatures that God will use to provide for man, as well as showing the great contrast between man, beast, and the Creator Himself. While we see the beauty of the created order on day five, how God brings forth life, those fish and birds are nothing compared to the life that is coming on day six of mankind. A living, breathing soul. And this we should be teaching to our children because they're going to get the opposite from school. School's going to tell them that they're just animals. They're just higher evolved mammals who happen to have thumbs and higher functioning brains, not to mention all their nervous systems and everything else that makes them so specific and individual. How about the fingerprints? and So many things that point that we're not an animal. The more you teach and tell someone that they're an animal, the more they begin to act like animals. The reason why I would say that we have and live in a generation, a world that lives like animals is because we believe that we are animals. And because we believe that we are animals, we believe that we are not accountable to God. And we're just here for the flesh, for the moment, for the time. And we're just acting out on our nature. The issue is that we're acting out on a sinful nature. And we're going to stand before God, the same God who made all these things, and the same God who desires for us to turn from these things and to turn to him so that we might know him and to know that we are not an animal 
but rather that we are made in the image of God and that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, died for us so that our marred image and our dark heart and our dead heart would beat with the breath and the life of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what this points to. That's this picture. The next time you see a bird or a fish or a pterodactyl or a great whale, <laughs> I want you to think that this is a creation that God made for a higher purpose, but it's nothing compared to what God does with man and what God does for man. So stay tuned because that's what we're going to get to next week. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this night. Thank You for each soul, each person that's here. Lord, for the ability that we can study Your Word and to know You, Lord. Not just know things about what the Bible has to say, but Lord, what it has to say about You. Or this is Your book that You've written for us to know You. And God, help us to not take that for granted or, or, or to think anything else of it, Lord. This is a glorious book. A living, breathing book for Your living, breathing people. Physically, spiritually, this breathing organism called the church, the body of Christ. God, I pray that you would help us tonight to hold these truths in our heart, to meditate upon your word. And Lord, as we go from this place, that we would be reminded daily who we are in you, and as well that we would go forth with it on our minds, and with it on our hearts, and flowing from our lips to a lost world that needs to know that you are God and God alone, that they must turn to you in humble obedience cry out for salvation, that you will save them because you desire for them to be saved. You desire for them to know you. So God, help help us tonight to keep these things in our mind. And Lord, that we might serve you and serve forth the purposes that you've called us to do. We love you and we thank you because you first loved us and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a blessed week. Watch out for the great whales and the birds and stuff. And we'll see you Sunday.